Father, it is good to be here in this place. Lord, it is good to be in your presence. Lord, it's good to be here with um, with the church, with these people. Um, we come to just seek you, uh, to worship you. And, and Lord, we come with um, all kinds of different things going on. Um, some of us with, with heavy hearts uh, for personal needs or needs of others. Lord, um, some of us just um, rejoicing with the way we've seen you work over the course of these last few days. And um, Lord, we love you. Lord, we just we give you our lives. Lord, this morning we give you our time and we in, invite you to do the work in, the, in our hearts, Lord, that you need to do. And Father, allow us just to enjoy your presence, um, the encouragement, the love, the peace that comes from that. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this church. Thank you for Phil and the message that he has for us. Speak through him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Matt. When we go on this hunt, we take a bunch of campers over and kind of circle the wagons, if you will, on a campsite that's not far from the hunting grounds that we spend most of our time on. When we go back in the evening, there's always wonderful fellowship sitting around the campers. We have a meal together, and then as the sun sets, we disperse in to go to bed. My sons typically are able to join us for this hunt, and this year I got surprised by my oldest son being there as well. We had not expected that to happen, and so Nick and Eli were in my camper with me, and we always have fun when the doors close. We have fun the whole time, but when the doors close, we just get to laughing together and laying in bed, telling stories, most of them just silly, but telling stories and enjoying each other. Well, one night this past week after they had kind of quieted down and I'd gotten kind of quiet and I heard them starting to breathe heavy as they fell asleep and I was still wide awake so I decided to do a little bit of studying for today's message. It was random really that's all it was was just random. I wanted to get a jump on things that needed to be done at the end of the week. So I was on my phone reading some different things and and I stumbled across an article by a wonderful preacher named Adrian Rogers and I wasn't very far into it when he had me hooked. I mean, just had me hooked. Well, this is why. Take a look at his opening paragraph. A few years ago, a major TV network aired a documentary titled The Search for Jesus, featuring scholars who pooled their ignorance. I thought that was funny. As these men attempted to examine the Lord Jesus Christ, it was about as informational as a group of blindfolded men in a cave with a jug full of lightning bugs trying to examine the noonday sun. The reason they didn't find him was they were looking in the wrong place. Oh, he had my attention. There were several things in there that had my attention. He followed this up by talking about an interview between Bryant Gumbel and Larry King, and I found that to be quite interesting as well. If, if you have watched TV at all in the last 35 years, you have at some point seen Larry King as he was interviewing other people. Well, in this case, he was the interviewee. Bryant Gumbel was sitting on the other side of the table talking to Larry. He asked Larry this penetrating question. He said, Larry, if you were sitting with God across the table from you, and you could ask him any one question, what would it be? Larry King thought for just a few minutes, and then the classic interviewer responded this way, Do you have a son? That's his question to God. Do you have a son? Like Adrian Rogers, I hope that Larry finds the answer to that question sooner rather than later because eternity hangs in the balance. It really does. Do you have a son? Rogers goes on then to say this, 
To explain him is impossible. To ignore him is disastrous. To refuse him is fatal. My speech is too limited to describe him. My human mind too finite to comprehend him. My heart too small to contain all the love that the Lord Jesus has. To know the answer to who is Jesus, we must go to the divinely inspired Word of God. And that's exactly what we're going to do in just a minute. If you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the first chapter, and we're going to start in the first verse. While you're turning there, listen to some of the things that Rogers would actually say about Jesus. Of all the people who ever lived in recorded history, about 30 billion have lived on planet Earth. Of those, only a handful have risen to such prominence that they could have affected and effected human history. Among that handful, one name stands out above all, Jesus Christ. No other person has ever attracted such attention, devotion, criticism, adoration, and opposition as Jesus. He is the focal point of all theological discussions. Philosophers and historians have studied him. He lived in the flesh about 2,000 years ago in the small country of Israel, yet for centuries his birthday divided the years into B.C. and A.D. You can look at your watch at any given time and millions of people will be studying his word. His ministry lasted only three brief years, yet his message travels around the world by radio and television. He had no formal education, yet his life caused the founding of more colleges, seminaries, and universities than any other. Multiplied thousands of schools, hospitals, and orphanages have been built in the name of Jesus Christ. Yet he is still so confusing to a lot of people that even though they are, are put forward as highly intelligent, as a person who could interview heads of state and politicians and people of power and position from all around the world, a man like Larry King would still say, after all of his years on this earth, sitting across the table from the Lord, do you have a son? He still doesn't understand Jesus. I might offer to you that the reason he doesn't, and this is what Adrian Rogers was putting forward, is that he's never really opened his Bible. He's never really read the Word of God to discover who Jesus is and what he brings not only to the world, but to our lives. And I want to show you those things this morning. Most of it centering around one powerful word, and we'll get to it in just a minute. If you're in John chapter 1, start with me in the, the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now let's skip to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you don't get very far into this passage before curiosity kicks in. In fact, you don't get very far into this passage before curiosity takes over. All we have to do is read this statement. In the beginning was the Word, and you should be curious. If you've been around the church long at all, if you have been a student of the Bible in any capacity, if you have ever read the Gospel of John, you know that John is actually speaking of Jesus. We could easily read that verse just like this. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. But that's not how John puts this forward. John is a really interesting character in the Bible. 
one of the apostles. He wrote a number of the books. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the three letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And he is the author of the book of Revelation. The Lord spoke through the Apostle John. In the first letter that he wrote, John would say this. You don't have to turn with me, just listen. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Here's what John's saying. John is saying, I want you to know what I've experienced. I want you to know about the person that I have seen. I want you to know about Jesus so that you can experience everything that I have experienced so that my joy may be complete in knowing that you have responded to the invitation that Jesus puts forward. He's a passionate preacher. Passionate preacher. No question about it. I understand what John was saying there because I have seen the Lord. I have experienced the Lord. I have tasted the Lord. And I want you to know about Him. I know exactly how John was writing. Yet back in the Gospel of John... John is using all kinds of cryptic language to help bring out the idea of who Jesus is. And that's how he starts. He doesn't start just in your face, in the beginning was Jesus. He starts by saying, in the beginning was the Word. John was an illustrator. By nature, he was an illustrator. He's the one at the end of his book that would say that if all of the miracles of Jesus were recorded, there isn't a library on the face of the earth that could contain all of the books to detail the acts of Jesus. Yet in his gospel, he would choose just seven, listen to this, just seven miracles to illustrate who the Lord is. And then he would use language like the Word to capture our attention, to help us understand the one that we love and the one that loves us. Now, you know this to be true. Words are a way that you communicate what's in your heart and in your mind. The same is true of God. He uses words. And that's why John would choose the word word to describe Jesus. But there are other places throughout Scripture where we see that come to life. Like this in the book of Revelation. If you want to turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Verse 13. John again is the author, but Jesus is the one who says these words. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek language. Jesus says, I am the first letter and I am the last letter. I am the beginning and I am the end. If you want to know the heart of God, if you want to know the mind of God, then pay attention to me. That's Jesus saying, I, I start it and I finish it. That's who I am. The writer of Hebrews would capture it this way in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Through Him also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The writer of Hebrews says, not only is Jesus the word that communicates the heart and the mind of God, he's the final word. He is the final word. And that's what John wants us to understand. That's why he starts the way he does. If you paid attention to the verses that we read from the Gospel of John, the first three verses and then verse 14, here's what you would have learned. John was making this very clear. Jesus is the eternal Word of God. He is the creative Word of God. And He is the incarnate Word of God. Those three things come out in the four verses that we read. That's deep teaching. That is deep theology. And that's what John wanted us to know about Jesus. But then he brings out a couple of other words right at the end of it. Did you catch it? This is verse 14 again. And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now listen, full of grace and truth. That's who Jesus is. He is full of grace and truth. I want us to take a look at those two words predominantly the word grace, but we'll touch just a bit on truth as well. Grace is this really interesting word in modern Christianity. It's used all the time. Churches will use it as a title or a name for their building and for their congregation. Grace Bible Church, that's just an example of it. Word of Grace Church. Grace permeates modern Christianity. Grace as a, a concept permeates our faith. Yet interestingly enough, as you make your way through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find out that Jesus never once used the Word. He never used the Word grace. Oh, He taught it and He lived it, but He never used the Word. It's entirely possible that the reason Jesus never used the Word grace, but chose instead to teach it by living it, is so that we would do the exact same thing. We would teach it. We would demonstrate it by living it. And if we have experienced the grace of God poured out on us, manifest in us by the power of Jesus Christ, then it should elicit something from us. It should elicit the exact same thing. But until we understand what grace is, we're never going to be able to extend it. If you really want to get into the idea of grace, you're going to find out that it ties back to an Old Testament idea or an Old Testament concept of bending or stooping. It has actually been defined in the Hebrew language as condescending favor. Grace is condescending favor. Before church started this morning, we showed you a a pretty in-depth teaching video. It only lasted about two minutes, but there was a lot of teaching in it about what grace really is according to the Greek language and the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, was condescending favor. Illustrated beautifully like this. God reaching down from heaven and lifting us up. God coming down from heaven and lifting us up. We could put modern terminology to that and say it's like royalty that would stoop down in front of a commoner. That's what Old Testament grace looked like. A great theologian named Donald Barnhouse would actually say it this way. Love that goes up 
is worship. Love that goes out is affection. But the love that comes down, that's grace. That is grace. Love that comes down is grace. So we have this idea that circles all around New Testament Christianity that is even tied to Old Testament principles, yet we still have to try to figure out exactly what it means. So that allows us to get into our Bibles. Let's go to the book of Ephesians together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And I'm taking you here because of all the places that grace is mentioned in the New Testament, this is my favorite place, my favorite spot. It is by far the most familiar verses we'll ever find on the subject of grace, and there's a reason for it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not by your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith. God came down. God came down. And He did that through His Son, Jesus. And He saved us. That's grace. God came down and He lifted us up. That's grace. And if it is, if it is that powerful, it has to mean more than just granting us entrance into heaven. It has to mean more than just forgiveness of our sins. For so many people, that's how we want to define grace. That's where we want to leave the idea of grace. Because of grace, I get to go to heaven. Because of grace, I am free from my sins. Well, there's more to it. Charles Swindoll, when he was asked about it, would think for just a few minutes about a word that would sum up grace for him. And this is what he says, and I, I love the way he does this. He says it's, it's freedom. Grace is freedom. It's freedom from all of the bondage of life. Grace is freedom to be who I am supposed to be. Grace is freedom to discover what God has placed uniquely inside of me and allow it to come out. Grace is freedom that allows me to accept who I am. Grace is freedom that allows me to shake my way out of all of the things that the world would place on me, that other people would place on me, and allow me to stand before God solely as He sees me. Now that's freedom. It really is. You think about what grace does for us. Grace allows you to acknowledge who you are. Grace allows you to accept who you are. But more than anything else, grace brings a freedom into your life that allows you to become who God created you to be. That's what grace does for us. It is so much more. It is so much more than just granting us entrance into heaven so that when this life is over, we get to walk through the pearly gates. My friends, if that is all you see in Christianity, it's enough. But you are robbing yourself. You are robbing yourself. If all you see in Christianity is the afterlife, then you are missing out on what God has in store for you in this life. Right here, right now. Grace is freedom. Embrace it. Embrace it passionately. And learn to live within it. Because grace changes things. Grace really does set us free. And in that freedom then, we find ourselves in a place where we can actually understand the Word of God. Where we can actually understand truth. 
throughout the course of the last 30 years, I've spent a lot of time with people that struggle reading their Bibles. And there are different reasons for that. Some people struggle reading their Bibles because they grew up in a faith system that never encouraged them to read on their own. They may have grown up in a faith system that said, you need somebody else to read for you, to translate for you. You need somebody else to tell you what God is saying. And certainly there is a place for teachers. Certainly there is a place for preachers to help us go deeper and deeper into the Word of God. But when you have been touched by grace you have an understanding, supernatural understanding given to you by God Himself to open up your Bibles and start embracing what God has for us. You can study the Word of God. There are some people that have a struggle when it comes to reading their Bibles that was placed there a long time ago because they were convinced on their own that God didn't care about them and therefore they chose not to care about Him. So they've never opened their Bibles. Some people have a struggle in understanding what Scripture says because they're afraid of it. They're afraid that they may come across something that they don't want to hear. They may stumble across some life-changing teaching that's going to get a hold of them and take something from them. So fear keeps them away. And there are other people that struggle reading their Bibles because someone, somewhere in their past, convinced them that God could never love them. And so they don't want to open their Bible. It isn't out of anger. It's out of a low self-image. It's out of pain. It's out of struggles. It's out of hurts and wounds that were placed there by someone else and I might offer to you by the devil. So they struggle with it. But the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us back in John chapter 1 that when we have been touched by grace, we can understand truth. Jesus brings both grace and truth to us. If you want to see what it means to break free of some of the bonds, some of the bondage, really is the better term, that life gives us, then let me introduce you to a lady in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying it to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, I want you to pay attention to the penetrating things this woman just said. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me the water, this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, in order to really understand what she's saying, you have to pay close attention to the time of day. Did you catch it? This was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Sun's blazing hot. Jesus is sitting by the well. This woman comes alone. These ladies would have never gone to the well to draw water alone, let alone at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The women during this particular time were responsible for things like gathering water. So they would take these huge containers out and they would fill them up and they would pack them back and it was a labor-intensive job. So they would go early in the morning when it was still cool. They didn't come at 3 in the afternoon. This lady did. She didn't like it. Because every time she came to that well, it was a reminder that she was coming at 3 in the afternoon when all the other ladies came early in the morning. There were things going on in her life that had ostracized her. She was wrapped up in a lot of bondage. And then she met Jesus. Verse, Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now we're getting some insight to why she was there at three. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And she went back. And she told people who she had met. And they came out to meet him. And lives began to change in this foreign land of Samaria. Because this woman was freed from the bondage. Freed from all of the aspects of life that had weighed her down. In just one meeting with Jesus, in one touch of grace, everything changed for her. And he introduced to her truth. Time is coming when we will worship not on this mountain or in any city, but we will worship in spirit and in truth, Jesus says to her. And now it's all starting to make sense. You see, when we have been touched by grace, truth begins to make sense. The Bible becomes clear. The things of God become evident to us. And we're able to pay attention to it. As I was studying this week, I... I stumbled. That's the best way to say it. I stumbled across something I had never seen before. And I've been highly intrigued by it for the last several days. I'll show it to you. Let's go to the first letter of John now. 1 John chapter 4. This ties in beautifully with truth. I'm going to read for you 14 verses of Scripture. And I want you to pay very close attention, looking for what you would refer to as the most important word In these 14 verses. So you look close. Here we go. Verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now let me stop there for just a second. Spoiler alert. In this particular application, the most important word is not propitiation. That's the biggest word. That's the most biblical sounding word. And some of you are thinking, I got it. It's propitiation. Nope, it's not. Let's go on. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, quick test. We don't do this very often, but a little interactive time, a little test in the, the midst of the message. What's the most important word out of what we just read? Love. Anybody else? Love God. Anybody else? No. <laughs> oh, okay, I, I got you. Ought, ought, take a look at this. This is verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In the Greek language, and this is what I was discovering this past week, and you know that I am not a a linguistics expert at all. In fact, I am not even a student of the original languages. I am nothing but a pauper when it comes to that, and I have to to sit at the feet of people that know a whole lot more than I do in order to pull things out of the original languages. But in the original languages, the word odd, as we see it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, is known as a natural imperative. It is a natural imperative which means that something natural takes place within us when we discover grace. When grace touches us, then something happens. Now that's how the natural imperative works. Now if you go on through the whole explanation of it, you find out that the word ought is used in in other applications like this. A bird ought to fly. Water ought to be wet. It's that natural. This is that natural. So the application of it in the original languages is this. When we have been touched by an external impulse like grace, and grace comes from the outside, it is external. When we have been touched by an external impulse, it causes an internal impulse. That's the way it works. And that internal impulse then causes us to love other people the way that we have been loved by God. So that's why John can say, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
It's natural. You should do this because. It's simple logic if you want to move into the realm of philosophy. But really, when you get into simple languages like this or the original languages, you can see exactly what grace is supposed to do in us. Verse 19 would say it this way. We love because He first loved us. We love other people because He first loved us. My friends, that is truth. John would say back in the Gospel of John chapter 4 that Jesus is the Word of God and He brings to us grace and truth. He brings to us the external impulse of grace that we might extend the internal impulse of love. And it ought to be that way. It ought to be that way. That's what grace does for us. Grace changes how we see everything. Grace through truth changes how we see everyone because we have been touched by it and we ought to be touching other people with it. Does that make sense? That's grace. That's grace in a tangible, applicable way. That's grace. What's been done for you, you do for others that they might see the Lord. I want us to take just our last couple of minutes and the worship team will come up while we do this and make a church application for you. For the next five weeks as we lead up to the offering that we're going to take on October 6th, we're going to do some church application things. It's not going to take the bulk of the message. It's not going to be the main thing that we talk about, but every message I want to show you some different ways that we apply the things that we've been talking about as a church. So let's talk about grace. What are we going to do with that? How do we as a church handle it? Well, one of the things that we want to continue doing is celebrating the goodness of other people's lives. Paying attention to what is going on in other people's lives and celebrating with them. By doing that, we are are changing, shifting our own personal perspectives onto what's happening in other people's lives. What God is doing in them and through them. I have a very good friend who's taught me this in the past few years through what I refer to as, as his celebration emails or text. Now here's what it looks like. He pays close attention to the things that are happening in my life and when he sees something that he perceives as a victory for me, he will send me a congratulations message. It might come via email or it might come via text, but it always blesses my heart. And he'll very simply say, congratulations. Hey, I saw this. Congratulations. Just like that. Just congratulations. I have been so blessed by that that I have started to apply the congratulations email or text with other people because I want them to know that I am celebrating their victories. I am celebrating for them the things that have happened in their lives, the goodness that is happening. And it's a lesson that I learned very practically and personally that now I want to extend to other people. Do you see how we ought to do that? When grace touches us, we ought to extend it. It's the same thing. So we want to celebrate the goodness that is happening in other people's lives. And we want to ensure that the gospel continues to spread. That's why we're taking that offering on October 6th. 
so that we can make sure that the gospel continues to spread. 56 years ago, some people came to Libby, Montana and planted this church because of that very thing, that reason. They wanted to ensure that the gospel was spreading throughout northwest Montana. And there were a group of people here that that they wanted to gather together as a church and then continue spreading the gospel throughout the world. And they did it very well. And throughout the 56-year history of this church, there have been some highs and some lows, but many more highs than lows, and the church has ensured that the gospel has continued on. There's been some folks that have protected that with everything they have. Their very lives have been invested in protecting that message that the gospel will continue on. Fourteen years ago when we moved into this building, We knew that we wanted to use it as a tool and God has allowed that to happen and it has been a tool and we want to continue that on. We want to make sure that it isn't just about a building but it is about the gospel message spreading not just here but abroad. And so by liquidating the debt, we can continue to do that. Now what happens after the debt is liquidated on this building? Honestly, the leaders don't know. It is very fluid. They are continuing to say, Lord, whatever you want us to do, we are open to doing that. If you want us to enlarge the facility here, we'll do it. If you want us to do something abroad, we'll do it. They are very open to it. And I want you to know that I meet with these men on a regular basis. And the one thing that governs them more than anything else is a desire to ensure that the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to spread. It's what drives them. It's what motivates them. It's what gets them out of bed in the morning and it's what puts them to bed at night. They want to make sure that the gospel continues to spread. And so we want to do the same. We want to make sure that grace continues to touch other people and it's what we ought to do. So we will. That's what you do with grace. It ought to cause something in you where you see other people differently and you celebrate the goodness in their life and you make sure you touch them with the gospel. That's what grace does. It ought to bring that out in all of us.